Good morning. We're going to go get started with our Sunday school lesson this morning. But before we jump into the text, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for another day of life, for our health and strength, for family and friends. Lord, for all the many blessings that you've given us that we often take for granted or they've just become so commonplace we don't see them as blessings anymore. So Lord, I pray that you would just uh, help us to really meditate and think about these blessings that you've given us and, and teach us to have grateful hearts, Lord. Um, I know that without that, it, uh, we, we, we go into apathy, and when we go into apathy, we go into ungratefulness and resentment even and unforgiveness, and a lot of times that causes you to uh, pour out your discipline on us. So Lord, help us to uh, self-correct and uh, really focus in on the things that, that, uh, that you've blessed us with. So many times we open up our prayers, Dear Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for all your many blessings, as if it's a formula, and we don't really take time to meditate on the words that we're saying. But Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us, move in and through us and among us, opening up our hearts and minds, preparing and priming uh, such for the reading and the acknowledgement and the comprehension and the application of your word this morning. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so we are in Genesis chapter 34, and we dealt with the uh, first seven verses. And just kind of a recap, this is talking about Dinah, which is Jacob's daughter and Leah's daughter. Uh, she was kind of uh, very headstrong, and she decided to go out unaccompanied on, on her own to this new place that they've settled in called Shechem. And as a result, uh, one of the princes of Shechem saw her, lusted after her, had her kidnapped, and then subsequently raped her. So now we're at that point where um, this has been known to Jacob, and Jacob is having to figure out what are we going to do about this situation. So we already determined that because of the kidnapping that uh, Shechem did, that according to the Mosaic law, uh, Shechem deserved death because kidnapping is a, uh, is, a, is a death penalty offense. Not only that, but under the circumstances and situations in which she ra he raped her, uh, he deserved death. But also in Deuteronomy, Chapter 22 gives us a little bit more insight upon Dinah's situation and what really <laughs> uh, Shechem deserved. Now, even though the Mosaic Law was not written and penned at this time, such laws were orally passed down from the time of uh, you know from the time of Adam all the way down. They were passed down, so they were oral laws and oral traditions, and they were codified uh, and further. Um, Further explained and expounded upon by God when Moses, uh, uh, when Moses uh, was on top of Mount Sinai and God met with him there. So this was already kind of in the minds as far as justice is concerned with Jacob and his sons. So in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 28 and 29, it reads, Suppose a man finds a young virgin who is not engaged. Now we, we know that Dinah was 15. When, in the biblical times that we're talking about, she was of marriageable age. She was of the age of conceiving as well. So we don't know for sure if she was engaged or not. Uh, but regardless, uh, if she was engaged, it's a death penalty. Um, so here in Deuteronomy uh, 22, 
Verses 28, suppose a man finds a young virgin who is not engaged, grabs her and lies with her, and they are discovered. Then the man who lay with her is to give to the young woman's father 50 pieces of silver. So because of this rape, uh, it's kind of a shotgun wedding scenario where Shechem would have been required under the Mosaic law, which would have been just oral tradition up to this time uh, with Jacob and his sons, that he was to pay a bride price for her because he's already defiled her. But this is kind of his loophole way of weaseling out of the death penalty because he already kidnapped her and he raped her and he deserved death because in the way in which he raped her. And uh, for the explanation of that, you'll have to listen to last week's lesson in, in, in regards to that. But it says, suppose a man finds a young virgin who is not engaged, grabs her and lies with her, and they are discovered. The man who lay with her is to give the young woman's father 50 pieces of silver, and she is to be his wife. Since he has humiliated her, he may not send her away all of his days. Now, Deuteronomy is written in the context that it's a Hebrew talking to a Hebrew. So if this was the case, marriage, would, a shotgun wedding would have been an option. But because Shechem is a Canaanite, and as we discovered last week, actually an Amorite, He's part of the Canaanite nations, and they were forbidden to intermarry with these Canaanite nations. They were to be exterminated and extinguished because they, their genetics were polluted because of their activities with the uh, fallen angels from Genesis chapter 6. Because even after the flood, it says there's giants in those days and afterwards. So there was a resurgence of this. So basically, no way of getting around it. Marriage was not an option. Uh, and these people deserve death. But the way that Jacob's sons went about it probably was not the right way, uh, as we're going to get into. So, in Genesis chapter 34, beginning with verse 8, we're going to read 8 through 10 and expound on it. It says, But Hamor spoke with them, which is Jacob and his sons, because as we learned last week, that Hamor, uh, Shechem said, Dad, Oh, I love this girl. This girl's so hot. I want her for my wife. And as we learned that she was more not likely a wife, as in, you know, going to be a future princess of Shechem, that she was probably one of many sexual conquests of Shechem, that she would probably have more of a concubine status than a, uh, an exalted princess status. So he says, oh, I want her. Get her for me. So Hamor, the father, goes to Jacob to, you know, negotiate the bride price and to talk about what happened. Well, uh, according to tradition and, and, and according to maybe the way the Hebrew language hints about what happened, that Jacob's sons showed up at the same time that Hamor showed up. And this could have been at noontime, but most likely it was probably in the evening after the workday was done and the boys come back from the fields. And so they, they showed up same time Hamor did, so they didn't really have a time to take Jacob to the side and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? And for Jacob to fill him in on the whole situation. So when Hamor came, all this came, to, came as a shock to the sons of Jacob. So they didn't really have enough time to make a game plan. But what we see here is that Jacob's sons are protecting the reputation of their sister Dinah and are kind of being the spokesperson on behalf of their father because Jacob at this point is very fearful. 
And he's operating out of the spirit of fear, which is not out of a godly, holy spirit. And we know his name was changed to Israel, but the rabbis say that every time, even though his name was changed, every time you hear Jacob, it's like Jacob was operating in his old nature in the flesh. But whenever he's called Israel, he's operating in his new name, his new identity. So here we see he's operating in his old fleshly ways, and that is that of fear. So uh, it says, but Hamor spoke with, it, with them saying, my son Shechem is very attached to your daughter. Please give her to him for a wife. Intermarry with us. Ding, 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 red flag. You can give your daughters to us and you can take our daughters for yourselves. You can live with us and the land will be open to you. Live in it, move about freely in it and settle down in it. So Hamor's proposal of intermarriage uh, would have added to Hamor's numbers and it would have added to Hamor's possessions and territory. Uh, and Israel would have lost its distinctiveness and would have ceased to have been a people. They would have no longer been known or called by the name Israel. They would have been Shechemites or Amorites because they would have intermarried because Shechem and Hamor, their numbers were greater at this point than Jacob's numbers. So we see that, you know, here is kind of a proposal for intermarriage. Let's make peace. Let's become one big happy family. But there was ulterior motives there. And we see this in verse 23, which says, okay, this is Hamor and Shechem talking to the, the, their tribe. In a, in, a, in a legal court setting, it says, hey, their livestock and their possessions, won't they be ours? That's kind of a change of a tune from what he said here. You can give your daughters to us and you can give and, and you can take our daughters for yourselves. You can live with us and the land will be open to you as if kind of saying, oh, you, you, you know, you, got, you guys can still be who you are. You're, you're free to move about, free to do whatever you want. But here he's telling his people after the shock of, hey, the only condition here is we got to get circumcised. <laughs> and I'm sure the men were like, what? He says, no, 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 it's going to be worth it. Trust me. Just a little bit of your a little bit of your foreskin is all it takes. And guess what? Their livestock and their possessions, won't they be ours? Only let us consent to them so that they will live with us. This was Satan's plan to cause Israel to cease to be a nation before they even became an official nation. Because we know that they became a nation when they marched out in their camps in numbers out of Egypt during the Exodus. And when they crossed the Red Sea, that was, that was basically the, the, the symbolic birth canal. When the Red Sea parted and Israel passed through, that was the birth canal. They ended up on the other side of the Red Sea. Boom, they were born as a nation. So this was Satan's plan to stop that because he knew that the Messiah, according to Genesis, uh, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that there was going to come a redeemer out of Israel. And the whole plan was to pollute the messianic seed line so that the, that the, the Messiah wouldn't come. So if they intermarry with Hamor and Shechem and the Amorites then that would have accomplished that, that objective by Satan and his fallen entities and cohorts. So he says in verse 8, okay, my son is very attached. That doesn't sound like love. That sounds like lust. Very attached. That sounds like possessive, 
controlling, obsessive, micromanaging. And after all, if he was going to become, if she was going to become a concubine and not a true wife, she would have just been simply a sex slave anyway. So Shechem didn't love her. For all we knew, he had multiple wives and concubines. So very attached is not the same as, oh, I love her. So verse 9 uh, says, intermarry with us. Now, God prohibits this. And he prohibited this. Well, he prohibited this when Noah put a curse on Canaan. So right there, Shem and Japheth were not to intermarry with Ham's son Canaan's line, even back to that point. But in Deuteronomy, it's clarified even further. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, it says, When Adonai your God brings you into the land, that is the promised land, and you enter in to possess and drive out many nations before you, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, that is, the Amorites are the people of Hamor and Shechem. The Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and whatever ites you want to throw in there. <laughs> seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And so all these seven Canaanite nations are from the line of Ham. They're not Japhethites or, or, or Shemites. They're from Canaan, Ham's son. So here it's specifically prohibited, not only prohibited that you, you're not to intermarry with them. Verse 2 says, and Adonai your God gives them over to you. You strike them down, then you are to utterly destroy them. You are to make no covenant with them. A marriage contract would be a covenant. Make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Why? Because they're not going to show mercy to you. They want to take you over, assimilate you, and absolve you into their own nations and peoples so that you're no longer a separate entity anymore. Verse 3, here's the specific commandment. You are not to intermarry with them. You are not to give your daughter to his sons or take his daughters for your son, for he will turn your son away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Adonai will be kindled against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, you are to deal with them like this. Tear down their altars. Why? Because they're pagan. Smash their pillars. Why? Because they're cultic prostitution phallic symbols. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images with fire. You are a holy people. Holy means that you are set apart for a specific purpose, that you are separated. And doesn't the Bible say that Israel is to be a peculiar people? They're to stand out among the other nations. And God did this in various ways, through, through customs and laws and traditions. They looked different, uh, you know, because they were wearing seat and fringes. No other peoples was doing that at that time. Uh, the other peoples were, you know, eating whatever they wanted. God said, no, only specific, eat these specific things. And they were circumcised. Now, there were other peoples that did circumcise, but not in the same way that Israel did. Actually, Egyptians circumcised. Whereas Israel took the entire foreskin off the male phallus, the Egyptians would just split it. So that was the difference there. So one is removal, one is just kind of making more room, kind of cutting, if you will, kind of cutting a little room in the turtleneck there. So um, it was different. So Israel was set apart in so many different ways. 
And they would have lost these distinctive characteristics if they intermarried. And also they would have stopped following Yahweh and started following these pagan gods. For you are a holy people to Adonai your God from all the peoples on the face of the earth. Adonai your God has chosen you to be his treasured people. Um, okay, yeah, we'll just kind of stop right there for that one. All right, going back to Genesis 34. Uh, so intermarriage meant the death of a nation. It meant assimilation. And we see this has been the plan to destroy Israel ever since history uh, passed up to the present. Because during the time of the Maccabees, the exact same thing happened. When the Greco-Syrians came in, the Maccabees, which were part of the Levitical priesthood, um, Basically, they come in and, 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 and they came to the priesthood because they knew they had power and sway and influence over the people and said, hey, uh, now, now look, high priest Mattathias, now, you know, we don't, we don't want to hurt anybody. We want everybody to get along, and this is the best way to do it. Everybody listens to you. They follow you. All you got to do is sacrifice a pig here on this altar. <laughs> he said, not going to happen. And some other coward thought, well, we better do it or we're going to get in trouble. So they, he ran to perform that sacrifice, and Mattathias and his sons killed him. And they started a revolt because up to that point, there were so many Jews that were assimilating into the Greco-Syrian culture that guess what? They even went so far as to reverse their circumcision. How do you do that? You put weights and you stretch out the skin to create a new foreskin. Why was it so important to reverse the circumcision? Because when they went to the gymnasium and they went to the track and field, they were doing all their exercises in the buff. So it would be easy to tell, oh, he's Jew. He's not Greek. He's Jew. Look at him. So they were assimilating by eating unclean foods, by reversing their circumcision, by studying Greek philosophy and forsaking the Torah. So this has gone on for, for centuries and generations. And if it wasn't for the Maccabees, then Jesus would have never been standing in, in the book of John in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. So, okay, a little bunny trail, but worth going down. All right, verse 11 and 12, it says, Shechem also said to uh, her father. Uh, so Shechem's talking to Jacob here. The boys are listening, his sons. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Would that I find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. Set the dowry, in other words, set the bride price and the presents as high as you like. And I'll give you whatever you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. So here, Shechem is flaunting his authority as the prince of this land. He's flaunting his riches and material goods. He's like, hey, everybody's got a price. I realize that. But no price is too high for me. Name it. You want territory. You want land. You want cattle. You want gold. You want silver. Name your price. Because there is a bride price. That was 50 shekels of silver, as we read in Deuteronomy. But he's like, hey, you can, you can make it as high as you want thinking that Jacob and his sons wanted more wealth and more, more cattle, therefore more power and authority and property and things like that, more prestige in the land. But no, 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 that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the plan. And what <laughs> the price 
that they set so high was the price of circumcision. And could you imagine Shechem was thinking, circumcision, is that all? Well, gee, I get to keep all my wealth. I get to keep all my gold, all my silver, all my cattle. They just want a little smidgen of flesh from each one of us. No skin off my nose. I mean, hey, that's easy to do. Sure, it's going to stink in the, in the beginning. It's going to be very painful. But hey, you heal from that and you get over that. No big deal. I don't have to give away any of my possessions. So why not? It's a win situation for me. I get to keep my goods. Not only that, but I get to keep their goods because they're going to intermarry with us. They're stupid. These Hebrews are idiots. Why, why wouldn't they want riches and gold and cattle and land and all this kind of They want a circumcision? Come on. It's a no-brainer. Let's do this thing. So, um, all right. Verses 11 and 12, we just read that. Uh, all right. Let's move on to verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem, so right before Jacob could say anything, Jacob's sons jumped in and say, hold it, Father, we got this. Let us speak, Dad. So Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully as they spoke because he had defiled their sister Dinah. I know truthfulness is a very important thing. It's one of the foundations and one of the, the, the earmarks of being a believer. But let's go back to Nazi Germany. You knew that Nazism's wrong. You knew that the Jews are God's chosen people. What if some Jews came to you and said, hey, we're going to be sent to the gas chambers, to the concentration camps, unless you help us. And you hide them in your attic or hide them in your basement. And all of a sudden, the Gestapo, the SS, comes by. You got any Jews in here? What are you going to say? Well, I'm a Christian, and, and I'm supposed to tell the truth. Yeah, they're downstairs. No, you're going to lie. Because at that point, saving somebody's life and doing a justice, you're going to be deceitful to your enemies. When in every wartime you're ever honest with your enemies, deceit is part of the game of war. As they say, all is fair in love and war. So when Dinah was kidnapped and raped, that was taken by the sons of Jacob as an aggression, as an act of war. So they were under no obligation to be truthful with Hamor and Shechem because they knew that Shechem and Hamor was not being, being honest with them. Because after all, Shechem's name means a snake, a snake in the grass. Hamor means a jackass. They, they, their name in Hebrew means treachery and deceit. So they weren't counting on Hamor and Shechem being honest. They were already showing their cards by this aggressive act of war of raping their sister. So they felt under no obligation to be honest with them. Okay, but Jacob, Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully as they spoke because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, oh, 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 we can't do this thing. Give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised. We just can't do it. For this is a disgrace to us, which that part was true. Only by this will we consent to you. If you become like us, become circumcised, every male, then we'll give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves and live with you and become one people. Kumbaya, right? But if you don't listen to us and be circumcised, we'll take our daughter and we're going to leave. 
In other words, we're not only going to take our daughter and leave, we're going to leave with all of our cattle, all of our possessions, everything that could have been yours. Deceit is mirma, and it means craft, treachery, to feign. To feign means to fake. Like, um, I don't know if anybody's ever caught an episode that Mike Chase and I made of Home Accents, but um, I punch him out in one episode by accident. And, he, and Mike's character doesn't want to admit of getting punched out. And he says, oh, no, I feigned it. I feigned that. You know, I, I just acted like I got knocked out because I want to make you feel good, right? So Jacob's sons knew their father was afraid because in verse 30, Jacob's fear comes out. But Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me making me a stench among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. I am but a few men, and they'll gather against me and strike me. Then I'll be destroyed in my household and I. So Jacob revealed that he was afraid. His sons knew that dad was scared. Uh, So Jacob's sons knew that he'd make a fear-based decision that could destroy them as a people, that of intermarriage and a pact between them. So the boys use deceit because, number one, you never refuse a king without paying a price. They could have just been truthful and say, there's no way in Hades that we're going to intermarry with you. You flippin' raped our sister. Give her back. We're out of here. You don't say no to a king without any repercussions. Because kings don't take no for an answer. And Hamor and Shechem were like kings among their people. If they would have said no and just walked away at that, they probably would have had a reprisal. They would have been attacked later on anyway. Number two, they were dealt with deceitfully, so they are returning the favor. So verse 13 um, says, But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully as they spoke. And then we see that, uh, Shechem and Hamor's deceit is being revealed in verse 23. Won't their possessions and their livestock be ours? So number three, the boys were deceitful because this placated fearful Jacob. Kind of like, kind of like a little kid being scared. And it is a, a, a bad situation. You just don't want to flat out lie to them, but you want to say things that will comfort them. Let's say, God forbid, there's a tornado and you are all in the basement You don't know if the tornado is going to hit your house. You don't know if it's going to take your house away, but you're in the safest place of the house that could possibly be. But there's still that element that something could go wrong. Somebody could be killed. It could be dangerous. But you say to them in faith, say, oh, it's okay, Johnny. Yeah, I know this all sounds scary, but the tornado is going to go right over us and we're going to be okay. So, you know, just as you placate a child's fear, Jacob had a childlike fear, an irrational fear, and his sons were placating Jacob's fearfulness. Number four, why the boys were deceitful. Because they suspected Hamor and Shechem um, that their offer wasn't good. And indeed it wasn't, because they just wanted to assimilate them as a people and just get their possessions. They had no intent in living peacefully. What, what likely would have happened after making this pact is they would have subjugated the sons of Israel as slaves and took their daughters as concubine. And took all their possessions, and they would have just been a slave, lower-class populace among Hamor's people. So, verse 15. 
Only by this will we consent to you if you become like us by circumcising every male. So circumcision would have temporarily incapacitated the male population. Because in Genesis 18, 1 through 8, after Abraham was circumcised, it says that God came to visit him. And according to the rabbis and sages, this was three days after him and Ishmael's circumcision. It says that he was sitting in his tent with all of the doors to his tent open so he can look 360 around to see if there's any travelers because according to tradition, he was a very hospitable man. He brought desert travelers in to refresh them, to feed them, and to tell them about the one true God. So according to the Jewish rabbis and sages, God was actually visiting Abraham to see how he was coming along with the circumcision, just like you would visit a sick friend because Abraham was called the friend of God. And if Abraham was under the weather healing from an injury or minor surgery, let's say, you would go and visit that person to cheer them up and see how they're doing. So this is what happened. And so even in the midst of Abraham's agonizing pain on the third day of being circumcised, most painful day of recovery, it said that Abraham made haste. In other words, he rushed to be a good host to God and the angelic visitors that came to visit him. He didn't use his circumcision as an excuse not to be hospitable. So we realize that uh, this was a plan to, to emasculate, in a sense, Shechem's people, but also to incapacitate them for re reprisal because they struck first as an act of war by kidnapping and raping their sister. And you don't get away with that. You know, it's kind of like around here, like my wife's in Eccleston, right? You don't mess with the Eccleston boys. There was a, like when uh, Edward Tatlock was out west, somebody pulled up and parked their truck, backed it right up, and was starting to load Edward's stuff into their truck. Well, <laughs> Ronald Eccleston saw this come down and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, I know this man. You're not authorized to be here. And so he told his son, Jason, his son, go get me my saw. We're going to cut this guy's hands off. And this guy freaked out, right? He got in trouble. You don't mess with the Eccleston boys. You don't mess with Jacob's sons, right? <laughs> All right, so uh, let's, let's move on here. Verse um, 18. Now their words seemed good to Hamor, as well as Hamor's son Shechem. So the young man did not hesitate to do it, since he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, delighted in Jacob's daughter, that's kind of like delighting in a new Ferrari. Oh, I just can't wait to drive this. Oh, I just love my new toy. That's all Dinah was to Shechem. Just a toy. Now, he was honored above everyone else in his father's house. So basically, that's just saying that he's next in line in secession to be the ruler of the Amorite people, at least that sect of the Amorite people. So once Hamor died, Shechem would take over and be king. So Hamor's son Shechem uh, came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city. All right, they went to the gate. We, we see this all the time in Scripture. This is kind of lost in culture and lost in translation. When you hear of men and elders and people meeting at a city gate, this is always talking about a legal transaction. This is like a courtroom. They are making a court decision. They are legislating a decision for the entire people. So this is kind of like a powwow of all the elders of Hamor's people. 
So Hamor and his son Shechem came into the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men um, are enjoying a peaceful relationship with us, and they are living in the land and moving about freely in it. As for the land, look, it's spread out on both sides before us. We can take their daughters to be our wives, and we can give our daughters to them. But by this did these men consent to us, to live with us, to become one people. When all our males are circumcised as they are circumcised. So even though Shechem and Hamor were rulers, they still had to pass this by the tribal and clan elders. And it was, it was a sort, I mean, it was a sort of a democracy. Everybody had to agree to this, even though they could have forced every male to be circumcised and they probably would have, if the men said no, they wanted to offer them to make that choice first. When all of our males are circumcised as they are circumcised, their, again, here it is, their livestock and their possessions, won't they be ours? Only let us consent to them so that they will live with us. So it says that it seemed good. In verse 18, it seemed good. This means acceptable, reasonable. It's a reasonable compromise. And as I said, the way Shechem and Hamor were looking at it, they got the win-win. They didn't have to give one ounce of gold or one sheep to them they kept all their possessions they just wanted a little pound of flesh it'll you know the scab will grow back over we'll get healed of that and in time it'll be worth it we'll, we'll even forget about the whole incident happened uh so in the long run what is a couple thousand foreskins as dowry as opposed to riches land and cattle Hamor and Shechem think Jacob's sons are stupid for not asking for goods, and they think that they're getting the better deal. They get to keep their goods and obtain more at the cost of a smidgen of flesh. And so verse 19, you kind of get the impression that saying, quick, let's strike while the iron's hot. Let's do this before they change their mind. They may wise up and say, wow, this is a really stupid thing that we're doing, and they may change their mind, so let's do it now. So, so in verses 20 and 21, talks about, you know, they're, they're trying to convince the men of this circumcision thing, and they're saying, you know, they're peaceful. They're living peacefully among us. They were truly deceived by Jacob's sons because they said these guys are peaceful, which meant Jacob's sons were successful in pulling the wool over Hamor's eyes. They were truly deceived by Jacob's sons. Now, Jacob, the name means deceiver. It means heel catcher, surplanter. His sons were being deceitful in this instance. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All right, moving on to verse 22 and 23. By this did these men consent to us to live with us and become one people when all their males are circumcised as they are circumcised. Their livestock and their possessions, won't they be ours? Only let us consent to them so that they will live with us. The motive was to destroy Jacob as a distinct people. Satan's way of stopping the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. Hamor was a Canaanite, therefore he was cursed. All the way back to Noah when Noah cursed Canaan. And they were polluted by the Nephilim gene. All right, so verse 24. Now everyone who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to the son and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, everyone who went out to the gate of that city. Now these days, you probably wouldn't get any guy to consent to a circumcision, but to them, they were like, eh, no big deal. Yeah, it's going to hurt, but no worse than a tattoo, no worse than a piercing, no worse than a body branding. Give me about a week and I'll be fine, right as rain. 
If that's all I have to sacrifice for this good deal that's going to, you know, don't ask what, you know, as Kennedy said, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So the Shechemites were like, hey, this is going to be for the betterment of our people. I just have to just give a little smidgen of my flesh and we get all of these possessions. So they were cool with it. Verse 25. Then on the third day, while they were in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came against the city undisturbed and killed every male. Hamor and his sons, they were killed with the sword, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Again, an act of war, right? They took their flocks. Oh, Shechem was thinking they were going to get all of Jacob's flocks, all of Jacob's herders. But look here, the tables have turned. It says Jacob's sons, they took their flocks and their cattle and their donkey, those that were in the city as well as those that were in the field. All their wealth, their little children and their wives, they captured and plundered as well as everything that was in the house. So all the women and children became servants of Jacob and his sons. So the plan was executed. And again, according to the Torah, in Exodus 21, 16, kidnapping is a death penalty offense. So the whole people were complicit to this. None of the people came to Jacob and said, look, what my leader has done is wrong. I don't want any part of this, but I can't act or he'll kill me, right? Some people could have been spared if they went to Jacob and said, look, I, I don't want no part of this. But it said the whole men of the city were complicit with this. Yeah, go ahead. Let's be circumcised. It's a win-win for us. So we see here um, that reparations for robbing Dinah of her virginity, because virginity is priceless. How can you put a price on virginity? It's a gift you can only give away once. And again, back in that culture, Dinah was as good as dead, meaning she would have probably never married because nobody wants to marry somebody who's not a virgin. She's damaged goods. So any children that could have came from her are non-existent because she would have never gotten married and never had children. So once she dies, everybody who would have come from her does not exist. So it's the death of a world, basically. Reparations for robbing Dinah of her virginity. She would have likely have been an old maid the rest of her life. No one wants damaged goods. We see this even more so in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 19 and 20. Remember Amnon and Tamar? Oh, Amnon had the hots for his stepsister. Oh, Tamar's gorgeous. I want some of that. And his cousin said, well, hey, just pretend you're sick. And ask your dad, David, to send Tamar over to, to, to make you, you know, a good, a good meal to make you feel better. How could he refuse that? David had no idea what was being planned. And then, of course, Tamar was raped. And Tamar said, and, and then it says that after he raped her, he hated her even more than he loved her kicked her out. She tore off the sleeves of her, of her robe 
because the robe that she was wearing symbolized a, a, a virgin and a princess in Israel. She was no longer a virgin. She ripped the sleeves off and she said, what you're doing to me is worse than what you did to the first. Just ask dad, I'm sure he'll allow you to marry me and we can fix this. He didn't want any part of it. Well, guess who he was messing with? He was messing with her big brother, Absalom. Absalom wasn't a pushover. He was not gonna take this sitting down. So what happened in, in 2 Samuel 13, now she had on her long sleeve garment for with such robes the king's virgin daughters used to be dressed. When his attendant took her outside and bolted the door after her, Tamar put ashes on her head, mourning the fact that she's as good as dead because no children will ever be born from her. Put ashes on her head and rent the long sleeve garment that was on her. She lay on her, she laid her hands on her head and was crying aloud as she went. When her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Sounds like Absalom kind of had a hint that Amnon had the hots for her, but never really couldn't prove it, really never could do anything about it at this point. So now, my sister, keep quiet. He is your brother. Don't, think, don't take this thing to heart. But Tamar remained desolate. In other words, she never got married, never got pregnant. But Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So we know, what we know eventually what Absalom did. He killed Amnon. Years later, after Amnon thought the whole thing was forgotten. So this is reminiscent of the story in Genesis chapter 34 that we're studying today. All right, back to Genesis 34. And I think we'll be able to finish out this, this uh, chapter today. All right, Genesis 34 with verse 30. Verse 30. But Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me, making me a stench among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He's like, look, we're minorities. We're outnumbered. They surround us. Boy, sounds like Israel today, doesn't it? Israel is, is, is surrounded by Arab countries that, that hate them. But prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes. Love Trump or hate him, he has made the Abraham Accords. And so Jordan has already had an amicable relationship with Israel. Now Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates have sat down and normalized their relations. And as a result, Saudi Arabia has had to give permission for Israeli flights to fly over Saudi Arabian airspace to get to these other places. So this is probably going to force the Saudis to rethink what's going on, to make peace. And then that's going to put further uh, uh, um, pressure on Iran and Iraq to make peace. This is setting the stage for the Antichrist. Because what's going to happen once the Arab nations are at peace with Israel, then the screws are really going to be put to the Palestinians and say, look, guys, if we've been able to bury the hatchet, why can't you guys too? Look, it's a great plan, two-state solution. Go with it. So when the Antichrist comes on stage, comes on scene, he's going to be able to set the Palestinians and Israelis down, make a peace agreement, and that's going to start the, the tribulation clock. Because we know that midway through that seven years, that that treaty is going to be broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, they've got bunkers all over. Like every school, every daycare, every senior complex, there is a bunker uh, for whenever missiles start launching. And they have like maybe 10 seconds to really get there if it's really heading their way. But uh, yeah, that's pretty common. Okay, so back to the text here. Uh, Simeon, and, uh, okay, so here Jacob is, is terrified. He's, he's afraid. But his sons in verse 31 says, but they said, should he treat our sister like a whore? Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Her reputation is at stake here. So Simeon and Levi justified their actions. But we see that Jacob has the last word. Because before he dies, in Genesis 49, he gives a prophetic blessing to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of violence are their knives, and their secret counsel may my soul not enter. So even after a lifetime, Jacob still didn't comply with what his sons did. He still didn't agree with the way things went down. May, their soul, may my soul not enter. In their contingent, may my honor never be united. For in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they, they maimed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it was strong, and their rage, for it was cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. So Levi, So basically, Simeon and Levi... Levi doesn't get territory because he's a priest, and God says that, my, that your service to me is your inheritance. Whatever you get from the sacrifices, that's your inheritance, and it will be for all times. So God is not an Indian giver, forgive me for using that term, but you know what I mean by it, because all the other tribes have land. And people say, oh, the temple's destroyed, the law's been done away with. Well, then that means that God would have to go back on his word. He told Levi that the sacrifices were his forever, for all time. So we know that prophecy says that the temple will be rebuilt, a third temple, because the Antichrist will come and cease the oblations and the sacrifices of that third temple. So don't worry, the end's not yet. The tribes haven't returned. The temple hasn't been rebuilt. The gospel hasn't been preached to every man, woman, and child. We still got time. But, so Levi's inheritance are the, the uh, portions of the sacrifice. Because you know what? When they slaughtered an animal and sacrificed it, they only sacrificed a portion. You think that everything, unless it was a burnt offering, you think everything was put on the altar. No. They got, the, if, if a basket of grain was taken to them, they took a handful of that grain and offered it, and they were able to keep that grain for themselves to feed their family. Same with particular meat offerings as well. So Levi was scattered among Israel because they didn't have an inheritance in the land. Simeon had land. But it was landlocked, and they ended up getting assimilated into Judah. Now, this is very interesting, very controversial, but very interesting. According to the books of Maccabees, Simeon became the Spartans of the Greco-Roman era. The Levitical Maccabees called the Spartans their brothers in 1 Maccabees 12.6. So that's kind of interesting there. Now, Levi, you know, Simeon became warriors. If this is true, Simeon became Spartan warriors. But Levi was also warriors too because did not Moses use them as kind of like policemen? When they were in idolatry and paganism, Moses said, who's on my side? Who's on the Lord's side? 
Let's draw a line in the sand. Strap your swords on. Go through Israel. Kill all those that are disobedient. We're done with this. We're, we're over this. So very interesting how those prophecies came to be fulfilled. Now, Psalm 60, verse 6 says this. God promised us once for his sanctuary. I, the victor, will parcel out Shechem and share out the valley of Sukkot. So ultimately, at the end, God wins. God gets Shechem. God makes that part of his territory, makes it the valley of Sukkot, the valley of tabernacles, the valley of booths. So we see that from the start that God was against Shechem, and he ends up getting the last say and the ultimate victory in David's era in Psalm 60, verse 6. So, all right, that concludes chapter 34. Next week, we'll uh, go to chapter 35, another interesting chapter. This is uh, the rededication at Bethel when Jacob returns to Bethel after he's been away for many, many, many years. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time of studying your word and learning all the culture, customs, and the historical and legendary things that are kind of behind the story that we can draw out deeper, more, uh, uh, more concise, more clear, accurate picture and meaning uh, from what your word says. And we'll be able to answer those who say, hey, this just doesn't sound right. I don't understand what's going on. Uh, why is this the way it is? Um, and we can explain things to them. And Peter said that we need to always be prepared to have an answer for the hope that we have within us. So, Father, help us to remember this lesson, to study it further on our own, to be able to apply it to our lives so that we can share it with others. And prepare our hearts and minds today for the uh, 11 o'clock service that you would just prime and prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.